0: You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HT Smartcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Mint Dialogues, a weekly podcast where we focus on the big questions in personal finance and investing. My name is Neil Borate, and I head the personal finance team at Mint. I will be your host for this podcast. The podcast is a mint production and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcast producing platform. We have Shankar Sharma, Vice Chairman and MD at First Global. Uh, Pratik Oswal, Head Passive Funds, Motilal Oswal Asset Management Company. Viram Shah, CEO, Vested Finance. Swastik Nigam, Founder and CEO, Winvestor and Bryn Agarwal, founder of FinSafe India. The discussion today is about global investing. In the past one or two years, it has gathered enormous momentum in India. So I'll just make two broad points about why um, international stocks should form part of an investor's portfolio. And then I'll get some inputs from the panel. So I think there are you know, two broad reasons. One is that India, however you measure it, in terms of purchasing power parity or in terms of market exchange rates is less than 10% of the world's GDP. So when you confine your portfolio to India, you are missing out on the rest 90%. And I think the other reason is some of the world's most innovative tech companies, Apples, Alphabets, uh, Microsofts of the world are listed outside India and you get a chance to invest in those. So apart from those, Let me get some inputs from the panelists about why Indian investors should invest some of their portfolio abroad. Shankar, would you like to go first?
2: Sure. Thanks very much for having me, and uh, very good evening to everybody else. Um, So, uh, global investing—at least I can tell you my personal experience, my personal journey—and I have made my in my personal life probably five x the money in global investing than I have made in India, and in India, I've made significant money and I made it with far less headache and far less tension and far lower taxes than in India. So uh, in every way, I'm a, I'm a, you're preaching to the converted when you talk about global diversification. So from our perspective at FG, we started global investing from 1999. So now it's the 22nd year we manage close to, I think three quarters of a billion dollars in global assets. All in-house managed. In our global funds and global products, we have investors from pretty much every single major country, right from China to Japan. Of course, U.S. you know is is always a big chunk of investors and local resident Indians remitting money through LRS, you know, Middle East, Singapore. For us, the biggest, biggest, biggest reason to do global investing and therefore for our clients has been the fact that India, as you mentioned. Is a small part of the global GDP, but it's an even tinier part of global market caps. It's barely 2.5%. That means that you are letting go of 97.5% of the global opportunity when you're confined to a single country like India. And Indian investing has been extremely patchy, to say the least. So barring the last 12 months, in the preceding 10 years, Indian equities have delivered a princely return of only 2% in dollar terms. It's only last year's single-year returns which are improving the returns for the preceding six, seven, eight, ten years. Otherwise, India has been largely a wasteland of returns. I mean, we can always look at a few stocks and say that we made money. I've made a lot of money in the last 10 years. But we are the exception rather than the rule. Most people will mimic global, I'm sorry, the Nifty or the Nifty 500, and they, they have been disappointing. On a global basis, the opportunities and the money that has been made in the last 10 years has been phenomenal to say the least. And you mentioned American stocks. Everybody talks about the three, four American stocks. I can tell you the global opportunity has is is humongous way beyond America. So today we have had stocks in China just in the last six months which have gone up Forex. I'm talking significant size companies. I'm not talking the U- uh, the, the Chinese tech company. We are talking Chinese distillers. We are talking Chinese electrical companies. We are ch- talking the page industry equivalents of China. Uh, we are talking companies in the UK. You know a company called Dawa in tech has been huge. So the global opportunity is like an ocean. It's like you are spoiled for choice. In India, we fight over a TCS and Infosys and you know, five other, uh, you know, cement and steel companies. Globally, you can diversify across like literally, you know, 10,000 stocks. You can pick 50, 100, 200 brilliant companies, each representing a different kind of market. So therefore, what it does is it gives you tremendous return, but at lower risk, pound for pound as compared to a single country, even if it's a great... Country like India. That for me is the real thing. So I always say this that look, if I make, let's say, 15% in India, let's say best case, compounded return over over 15-20 over years, right? Best case. Even if I get 13%, but I can do that over 10 countries, I'm much better off because of the lower risk associated by getting a larger basket. Of returns, uh, it, uh, by, by returns coming from a larger basket of countries, larger basket of industries. So, for 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 us and for our clients, that is the real thing. It is, you can make, you can buy two stocks and make a lot of money, but that's not investing. That's gambling at the end of the day. So, global sure. investing is a must. It's not an option anymore. It has to be there and it has to be done right. So, I mean, I, I can go on and on about it, but suffice it to say, I think this is this is a must in everybody's portfolio. Sure.
1: Shankar, one dilemma that I've never been able to figure out is whenever you ask financial advisors in India, how much should you invest outside the country, you get a stock answer of something like 10 to 20%. Is that the appropriate number, do you think, since we just discussed uh, how low India's market cap is as a share of world market cap?
2: So the answer is that most Indians are constrained unless they are non-resident or they have you know, wealth abroad. Uh, through some business or whatever. Otherwise, most people are constrained by the LRS uh, rules of 250K per year. Within that, I would strongly recommend using 100% of that available to you and your family every single year. So if it's a family of four, you get a million dollars. You have to use it. You cannot let it go. Because like I said, getting exposed only to a single country gives you a huge amount of risk without adequate compensation. Therefore, Therefore, easily, easily a 30, 40, 50 percent number of your of your net worth must go to global investing. Also, remember, for a local Indian who's sitting in India, running a business or having a job, buying a house, all his investors, all his investments are anyway exposed to the India risk. So therefore, on your financial investment, at least don't add more India risk than, uh, you know, necessary in that at least put money abroad in a diversified basket don't go and buy just nasdaq that's not investing that's again gambling because tomorrow it can tank i'm just saying on a diversified basis put as much as the limits legally allow you to do that's the point in you know, a short point
1: sure so for somebody who is not an hni you know their 30 to 40% of their portfolio might be less than 250k Mrim, but would you agree with that i mean uh, is 30 to 50% a good amount to invest outside india
0: um good evening everybody and hi neil um nice to be here today so uh well i certainly believe that um you should invest outside india because as shankar also said that there are a whole host of opportunities that you don't have uh, in india and also when you look at the uh, indian markets they're fairly polarized as well right most of the times Um, In terms of a percentage allocation, um, I feel that up to uh, 15 to 20 percent is good at this point in time. And I'll just give you the investor's perspective, which is, you know, uh, uh, it is only over the last one to two years that people are more open about uh, investing abroad. So uh, typically, when I look at periods 15 years back, you still at that time, I think you could remit 100,000. At that point in time, most investors who would actually do it would do it uh, because they wanted to move some money abroad. And the typical investments that would be chosen also would be real estate or fixed deposits abroad. And the idea was to have some uh, dollar assets. But certainly that has changed now and investors are looking at diversifying abroad. I think uh, from an investor's perspective, what they are really comfortable with right now is up to 15%. And most people still want to check it out because also when you see the opportunities that are available. Publicly, So I'm not talking about PMS, or I'm not talking about investing directly. But if you see, um, you know, the mutual fund, that's space that's available, it is primarily very, very US based, right? And there are very few funds which are really, uh, which are actually completely global in nature. I think there are hardly five or six funds uh, with decent size AUMs that you would actually even want to look at.
1: Sure, but that's a slightly different point, right? You're saying that there isn't enough choice available. And, uh, you know, that's something that we have people on the panel who would say that their platform offers them that kind of yeah, choice. Yeah. But still, you would stick with the 15
0: to 20%. Yes, I would okay. still stick to the 15 to 20% from an allocation perspective. And of course, uh, there are clients uh, who want to have higher allocations, but on an average, I would say, 15 to 20% is what we normally advise and what clients are also comfortable with.
1: Okay, fair enough. Now, coming to the choice of products, um, we have gone from virtually no funds um, with international stocks. I think one of the earliest was probably the Motilal Nasdaq ETF. Uh, and Pratik, I'll invite you to speak about that in a bit. To a plethora of funds from across, I mean, um, SBI uh, MF launched uh, a US fund uh, just some months ago, and Srini's here. He can tell us about that. And right now, as we speak, Kotak is launching one. IDFC is IDFC Mutual Fund is scheduled to launch one. And apart from that, of course, there's a host of platforms represented by people on the panel and others, which offer direct stock investing uh, outside India. So, Pratik, you know the charge laid before people who are allocating abroad is it's just a fad. You're chasing tech stocks in the US. How do you sort of make sure that there's a good balanced allocation?
3: Yeah, thanks, uh, um, thanks, Neil, and uh, hello, everyone. So, I think uh, you know we obviously have uh, an experience of uh, not really selling, but you know having international fund uh, in our AMC for the last uh, now over ten years. And um, we obviously have not been focused in that space until about two years ago. And, uh, you know, my strong belief is that, yes, you know, there is an element of fad as well because, you know, people like chasing returns. But, uh, you know, there is a big talk about diversification, you know, which I think is uh, a key factor to why you're seeing the uh, the things that you're seeing right now. Um, also, I think uh, one more component on that is that, obviously, you know, uh, I think Indian equities in the last 10 years have not been great. So, I think, you know, people are you looking to diversify because now they're looking at... Uh, A lot more asset classes outside equity. So, you've also seen, I would say, similar growth in gold as well. So, I do believe that, you know, I think asset allocation is a key strategy for a lot of investors and and people are sort of coming to that. And within that, I think international equity, uh, you know, makes perfect sense. Uh, I think, uh, in addition to obviously the returns that have been uh, made in the last 10 years, I do believe that, you know, um, you are essentially getting an asset class which, uh, where you don't have to compromise return for lower risk. You know, you are getting something which will, over- across the portfolio, will lower your portfolio volatility. And we've seen over the last three or four decades is that, you know, when Indian markets are not doing well, U.S. markets tend to do well. And even between 2000 and 2010, you know, I think the U.S. markets were not doing well and Indian markets did really well. So I think it's good to have both markets in your portfolio. Uh, you know, I remember uh, you know, when I was in college in 2009, you know, all my friends and uh, colleagues out there uh, were, you know, investing heavily in emerging markets. And today, I think it's the opposite. So I, so I do believe that having a balanced portfolio uh, makes sense. Um, I think if you ask any investor, uh, not any investor, but at least most investors in, say, uh, the US or Europe or, you know, in, Asia, uh, in say, Hong Kong or other sort of more developed markets, you know, most people would have about twenty to forty percent of their allocation outside their home country. So I think it sort of makes sense in India. You know, India. I would say most people have close to zero percent allocation, and uh, I don't think this LRS limit is a problem today. You know, um, I think with mutual funds, you don't really have a limit. You know, we have clients who've invested tens of millions of dollars, you know, in one single year. So I do believe that um, it's a very simple way of you know getting allocation, sure. so you don't have to worry about the paperwork.
1: So Pratik, on that point, actually through the mutual fund route how do you create a balanced portfolio because you know you have lots of funds investing in the us you have virtually nothing investing in other emerging markets there's one fund investing in china i know that you've announced plans to launch uh, an emerging markets fund so could you talk about that a little bit and how do, how do you create that properly diversified portfolio
3: yeah you know i think uh, i mean the, the idea, as um, Rin said and even Shankar said, it's it's important to, you know, have an allocation as opposed to an investment. You know, if you have, say, two or three or four percent of your portfolio international, it, don't, it doesn't really move the needle. It doesn't matter, you know, f- for you to have per- to have sort of diversification percolate across your portfolio. It needs to be, um, I would say, a significant sort of investment, which is why, you know, um, uh, even I'm saying about 15, 20 percent minimum should go in, um, you know, sort of uh, stocks or funds outside of india uh, but yes i also agree that you know obviously uh, us has been a big talk over the last 10 years but it's also important to you know look at other geographies as well you know as shankar said um, you know i think obviously i mean i can talk about the emerging markets fund that it's been delayed for so many months but uh, i think uh, you know we we have some challenges on the execution side but you know uh, but um, i'm happy to talk about that sometime later
1: okay Fair enough. So let me at this point bring in uh, first Viram and then Swastik. Um, you know there is very still there is limited choice with mutual funds, uh, but instead if you invest, uh, sorry, if you um, create a brokerage account outside, you have the entire gamut of stocks and ETFs around the world. So is that a better route to go?
4: Yeah.
5: Th- thanks, Neil, and uh, hi everyone. Good to meet everyone. I think it, it uh, really depends on the the investor's choice, right? There are certain investors that would not want to go through an additional loophole or an additional hurdle of, of setting up a, an account. Uh, they wouldn't essentially want to go through the easier kind of uh, investing through a mutual fund kind of route, which is fine. Uh, but we've seen enough people very interested in creating their own portfolios, doing their own research, buying directly either stocks or the, the wide variety of ETFs that are available, uh, directly in the U.S. market. So I think the market essentially in terms of global diversification, it it has multiple types of offerings, right? You have uh, ranging from PMSs to funds. There was an opportunity to enable direct so that you get access to the market directly itself without having to go through a, a, any other route, and 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 that's the opportunity that we wanted to tap into by by providing kind of a, a platform that allows you to invest directly, and and there is a, a certain type of customer that really likes that. They like having control over their portfolio. They like doing research and and uh, picking the companies and the ETFs that they invest in, and and uh, and it is resonates really well with them.
1: Sure. Um, so, Astik, if you want to elaborate on that and also maybe uh, counter some of the challenges that come with direct investing abroad. There's additional tax compliance requirements, uh, the forex conversion charges are quite a bit as well. So, how do you overcome all of that?
6: Sure, yeah. Uh, I think, I'll just echo what Viram mentioned, right? We've got uh, direct investing. So, for example, I'll take a couple of you know pointers. One of the challenges with, yes, you've got you don't have the limitations of LRS when you invest in a domestic mutual fund, but then to get that every additional fund, you will have an EMC, which will need to go register the specific fund, add its own cost structure to it, and it reduces some of that efficiency to the long-term efficiency for you. You're also, of course, not able to do as as appropriate an asset allocation that you'd like, right? Whereas if you'd invest directly, you'd also get access to many esoteric sectors that you wouldn't directly have access to, like robotics or a new semiconductor fund levered funds, inverse funds, and and commodity funds, for example, right? And I think those are all part of that product set which would otherwise not be available. Um, Before I tackle the question about the the concerns that, you know, do arise from a tax point of view, there are also a couple of other flavors I wanted to touch upon, right? When you started out the the thesis of the GDP, there's actually a significant part of India's own GDP that is not captured on the domestic stock exchanges, right? Many sectors have 100% FDI. Allowance, right? Especially, uh, you've got an Amazon or a Flipkart, Facebook, Google, all of them, even automotive sectors, right? None of those stories are getting captured in your domestic, you know, bosses. That is, that is truly thus a lot of the Indian growth is thus getting captured overseas. So, another counter question also is that if you aren't really making out the best of, you know, your own country, there are, however, external investors that are investing in those firms based on the growth that India is going to be showing. Mm-hmm. Those specific challenges, yes, I think those are, uh, those are real challenges in terms of TCS, which is a recent addition. You do have to, you know, block a certain amount of your capital uh, under the tax. So, collection I think, could you elaborate 7, on 000.
1: TCS? Not everyone would be aware of what TCS means, how much it is, and
7: so on.
6: Sure. So, uh, TCS is, is basically, you know, a tax collection at source. And if I remember correctly, it, it's above 7 lakh rupees. Um, if you make any investments, actually any flow of money under LRS, save money that's borrowed under uh, an education loan, right? You do need to pay 5% TCS on that a- a- allocation. So for someone like who's looking to pay hundred and fifty k, may almost have a $12,000 $12, approximately in TCS, right? So you do have that as, and that's a real cash flow burden. There are forex charges, forex charges. And right, that, sorry so yes, stick, just to stay, to stay on control. that
1: point of TCS for one more minute. So that tax can be set off against other tax liability that you get, right? And if you don't have the liability, then you can actually claim a refund, right?
6: That's right. So say for example, your total tax liability for the year would have been zero, right? You don't land, you're not supposed to be paying any tax. You will be able to claim that back as part of your annual tax returns. So that's right. You know, so it is a tax collection. It's not a tax deduction at source. You know, it's not a necessary liability. It's, it's an advanced tax, which is collected to you against your annual offset. The second part is a real cost, you know, which also exists. And that is truly one of the, the major points of friction from an economic point of view, the forex charges. This is outside of the con- outside of control of, you know, most of us as platforms. It is, uh, it sits within the, ad banks as such the ad1 banks and the banks can sorry what's an ad1
1: banks
7: swastik so could you elaborate
6: well the major banks you know who are not just remittance platforms and so the regulator stipulates that when you are making investment overseas right basically capital account transactions or financial account transactions overseas you must you can't just use a you know money changer on the street you have to send the money you, you know, fill up a form called the Form A2 and then sort of, uh, and a lot of banks actually have that digitally now, you know, so most of the major banks, ICICI, HDFC, Access, um, all of the major private banks now have this digitally, right? But you do, you are not able to, you know, just, uh, so, so that is what we mean by the 80 banks. You have to utilize only those banks and your own bank account particularly you can't just do it as part of someone else's bank sure, account or, sure. or do like a mass collection and then remittance. Sure. The second uh,
1: part... Sorry, Swastik, just too yeah. quickly. Uh, so I'm getting a lot of requests for questions. We will open it up to questions in the second half, uh, which we're down about targeting in about 20, 25 minutes from now. So please bear with us. Swastik, if you could just give us a number, how much are the Forex costs? If you had to remit, say, 25,000, somebody who's just starting off, with an international portfolio how much would he or she have to bear in terms of currency conversion
6: yeah that's a great question and that that is uh, that's an important point it also depends very heavily on the bank that you transact through so on average banks have anywhere from about 200 to rupees to even as much as two thousand rupees as a fixed cost over and above that there would be a you know an FX cost which is anywhere you know broadly it tends to be around the one 025 percent mark but it can be as little as zero point two five percent to even two and a half percent again depends bank to bank that is so for example if you've got you know you're making uh, one lakh rupee remittance you've got and let's take the case of someone like an icici which is which charges about a thousand rupees as a fixed cost right so you got a thousand rupees as a fixed cost over and above that so you got a one percent fx cost right so on your one lakh rupees that's going to be another you know, thousand rupees. So you got about a two percent cost right. as right.
1: part of so you know, all in upfront. Sure, yes. Sure. So you're losing five percent in tax, you're losing one percent in forex. That's a six percent upfront cost right away for any remittance exceeding seven lakhs. Brin, I think you wanted to make a Well the TCS things?
4: of course is
6: is you know reclaimable, right? It's not really a tax, it's a cash flow out.
2: It's a cash sure, out. Flow, sure, sure. Right? Neal, yeah, Neal, so, Neal, can I Neil sure, can sure. I just add and at this point, uh, the TCS is not a cost. It's just an advance, as the gentleman just pointed out. And the, and we have literally, as we speak right now, we taken crores of LRS uh, into our global PMS, which is run out of a UK subsidiary, and into a global fund, which is a Cayman fund. And I have never come across anybody really having a problem in terms of the costs of the remittance. To the best of my knowledge, it runs at about a quarter percent. Some banks are, of course, thieves. You know, there are many banks uh, that you can avoid in this. But by and large, we have found quarter percent, half percent tops is what on the average most investors pay to remit. Uh, since the remitters' amounts are 10, 20, 50 lakh rupees, their fixed charge of uh, 250 rupees or 500 or even 1000 rupees is not really a very material number. So really speaking, you know, it is it is not anything which is, you know, extremely Onerous by any stretch, and the five percent is the, the 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 TCS is obviously an advanced tax which you will set off against your other tax uh, you know payments and liabilities. So it's not onerous by any stretch. That's much I can tell you, and we deal with literally thousands of investors today uh, on our on our global PMS and global fund out of. I'm talking resident Indians who have never really complained about you know any usurious charges on this front. I just wanted to put that out there.
1: Sure, point taken, Shankar. you wanted to comment on this
0: yeah so you know while it does not really impact the ultra hni i I think there are a lot of investors um retail investors also who are buying stocks uh using various platforms and i think you know the costs somewhere add up to about four to six percent if you take on both sides you know more importantly i think one of the things that the investor needs to think about is also on the tax compliance because there are extra five sections that you have to do in your ITR. And, you know, given that a lot of non-ultra HNIs are actually DIY investors, you know, I think this is something that they really do need to think whether going direct, uh, and buying stocks directly. Should they do that or not? Because Again, you know, if there's a there's a withholding tax on dividends abroad, and they have to claim that in India, many of these people don't even deal with chartered accountants. So, if you're an ultra HNI, you have you're working with a you know chartered accountant. Uh, for them, all of these costs are going to be quite immaterial because it's really about maximizing portfolio returns. But I think for a lot of other investors. Let's say someone who's putting a lakh or even someone who's putting 10 lakhs, I think the tax compliance on direct investing and the costs as well are very high.
1: So, what's a good minimum ticket size, would you say?
0: Um, I would say at least put 50 lakhs, you know, because when you're doing 50 lakhs, at least you'll have other options, you know, instead of you going and trying to buy stocks yourself and trying to figure out what to buy, which country to get into, you can at least get into managed portfolios. So I'm saying at least minimum, if you want to actually get the advantage of global investing, because as everybody has mentioned that most investors are really going only into US markets. So I would say uh. Ultra HNI certainly should. Um, I mean, I would always say the mutual fund route is good for everybody. Yes, it has its limitations in terms of not being able to allocate to certain sectors, maybe being very country uh, focused, maybe being very US focused to an extent. But you know, I think from a smaller investor's perspective okay. or a okay. non-ultra HNI's perspective, I would say mutual funds certainly. Ultra HNI's have various options available to them. Sure. Uh,
1: sure. Yeah. Um, so, Astik or Viram, uh, would you agree with that? Minimum 50 lakh ticket size, below that it's not worth it?
0: Yeah, I
5: just uh, w- wanted to kind of talk about no, that uh, also for I'm, a second. I'm sorry,
0: can I just uh, say another thing? What I'm saying is that uh, below that, I would still say that if you if you're doing a ticket size of 5 or 10 lakhs, I would still say it's just better to do a mutual fund rather than going directly.
1: Sure. Yeah. So on that point, uh, Viram,
2: can I, I, I can I can, I can yeah. add some, cl- uh, sure, uh, some 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 perspective on that. So our global PMS starts at a very very affordable ten thousand dollars, which is seven and a half lakh rupees, and uh, we supply every single tax document to even an investor with just seven and a half lakh rupees. We rarely find any major problem. Uh, that those people run into these are very standard documents they they are they are done very smoothly you know the tax that is withheld on dividend dividend any very 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 small component of your overall return uh, you know on a on a global basis Uh, all of that is has worked very very smoothly so there might be some issues that what the the, lady is pointing out but our our experience on the ground has been that By and large, it has worked for even a very, very small ticket size of seven and a half lakh rupees. And 50 lakh rupees, while, uh, you know, that's a fair point that, yes, 50 lakh rupees is a good size. Uh, In our experience, most people want to start smaller. They want to dip their toes in. And we never, ever want to compel people to move up the higher amount because, you know, it's something new. People want to experience it, how it goes. Uh, There is a fear of the unknown. Uh you know, 50 lakh threshold can be fairly daunting for for many. Even even HNIs may or may not want to 50 lakh. And we have not found a seven and a half, ten lakh rupee figure to cause any problems as such. And in fact, in that what we give them is diversification across literally every country from Australia up until Latin America. Uh, we have reached, we have fixed income, we have high yield, we have we have we have investment grade, we have stocks in Canada, uh we have stocks in Saudi Arabia. I mean that level of diversification across assets, across markets for ten thousand dollars. I think every single client we have at least gets that. Uh, leaving alone the you know the diversification benefit or the lowering of the risk benefit, so it's possible to do this with even a smaller number than fifty lakh rupees.
6: Quickly chip in. This is really data from our our platform, right? We've seen clients start with a little dipping their toes as little as a hundred dollars, right? Because you also are trying to establish trust with a new platform, with a new market, right? So there are three different levels of trust that you're, and a new process. You've probably never sent money abroad in many a case, right? So you, you've you got these three levels of trust that you're trying to bridge, you know? And the other part is, especially on platforms like ours or or Viram's, right? You can invest in fractional shares as well, right? So you can actually build a whole diversified portfolio over 10 funds, 10, 10 ETFs at $10 each. And start seeing so a ask What
1: is the average ticket size you have? On the
6: platform, well, average average account size is straddles between the four and a, four and a half to five thousand mark. You know, generally speaking, four and a half to
1: five thousand
6: we've dollars. Seen, that's right, four and a half to five thousand dollars. But we've also seen that many of those clients have gone on to put in ten thousand plus dollars. Have actually started off with doing a download, and within fifteen minutes, you know, got your account, remitted money as little as a hundred or even five hundred dollars, and then gone on to really build up your portfolios. Right, once you start getting more and more comfortable. And you also become, you know, savvy to repeat remittances, right? Because once you've sort of figured this this plan or this route out, a lot of our clients are continuing to do repeat remittances and that's, that is, uh, then you're comfortable, right? We also start, then start seeing, all right, you've got the usual suspects that you're investing in, which might be the FANG stocks, but then over a period of time, because of the control you enjoy, you then start diversifying into also looking at emerging market funds, right? You'd you'd start looking. Hey, actually, is the is it really getting a bit toppy in the U.S. markets in the Nasdaq? Let me now start looking at other at other markets. Profit taking. So you see the full cycle of of a regular investor coming through when you start diversifying. Just you know, back to the point on diversification is also what I want to touch upon. Is this is the first leg that you know U.S. stock investing and and through that many other geographies as well. But on like our platform, we're seeing through our multi-currency accounts. Clients looking at high yield assets, investing into a fractional real estate, and and the and opening up other parts of the markets which otherwise would not have existed, including startup investing.
1: Right, but so I think that those are pretty complex, sophisticated okay. products, right? For the agent, H&M. did you want to come in on that?
0: Yes. So you see, the whole point that I was just trying to make is not about fifty lakhs or ten lakhs. What I'm just trying to say is that I agree that one should be investing abroad, but the tax compliance and certainly for a DIY investor, a PMS would obviously be providing, you know, all the relevant data and all the relevant forms and whatever is required for tax filing. But all I'm saying is that for small investors who are doing smaller transactions, let's say a couple of lakhs, I'm just saying that the tax compliance and the transaction costs, actually, I feel that, you know, keeping these two factors in mind, it's better to go with a mutual fund because it is very cumbersome to do the tax compliance in this particular case. I mean, there are five extra sections. Most people are actually filing ITR themselves, even people who are investing a couple of lakhs. So all I'm saying is that there is a, a you know, a, a, and I'm not saying that an ultra H&I should not go into a mutual fund or an ultra H&I should not do direct. I'm just trying to bring out the fact that the tax compliance and the uh, transaction costs certainly are a hindrance for smaller investors.
2: Uh, I'd like to add uh, another point of view on that, and which is, we there will be segments of investors who will prefer route A over B and B over C, just like in the domestic Indian market. So you have DIY investors in India who are very savvy, who are active traders, who will not never touch a mutual fund with a barge pole or even touch a PMS. They will, they are, they are comp, they're confident and in some cases they are competent enough to do it on their self, you know, at their own risk and, uh, time. Uh, at the same time, there are many people who are in a full-time job or who are in a full-time business and they have no time to manage and look at the ticker every second of the day and they say, all right, let's give it to a good manager, whether it's a PMS or a, or a mutual fund. So that segment is exact, is exactly the same for international. However, with one different, the international means you're up at all crazy hours. That's a big, big challenge for a local resident Indian. So unless you are, uh, frankly, I mean, sorry to use the word literally jobless, if you're holding a normal job, I really do not think it is possible for anybody to finish your job at uh, 7pm and then get in front of a terminal and trade American stocks. Uh, Or if you don't actively monitor, them, the volatility, and trust me, I've done this for 20 years plus personally on my personal money, you can wake up in the morning with your stock being down 40%. That kind of wall does not exist in India. We are rarely exposed to, you know, decent companies, missing estimates and opening down 40%, 30%. But those things keep happening. On the up and on the down routinely in America. I mean, it and, and frankly across the world. So it requires a special kind of mindset to do global equities directly and on the direct platforms. I'm sure a lot of the, the, the people trading are very young people, but definitely I would be surprised to see people who are 40 plus doing, doing all that waking up at being awake at 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. trading stocks. So it is a different segment that is, that is being catered to by these new platforms and then that, that they're serving a very important market. But that's not to say that that direct platform is the right platform for all and vice versa. That means that the young guys should go for a PMS or a fund. They want to control things. They want to see their stocks. They're excited by the movement. Let them do that. I mean, let the market be wide enough to cater to every investor's uh, needs. Okay.
5: Me, Neil, just one point I wanted to make um, on this is is actually the the... The power of technology and how in the likes of like Swastik and I are, are trying to use technology to solve the the issues that Min mentioned, right? Like for, for sure taxation was complicated early on with, when you wanted to directly invest in the US markets. Like there was no help you wouldn't know what to do, how to convert US dollar gains into rupee, nothing that you get in the end of March. But that's something that in fact we focused a lot of time on, where now at the end of March you get a easy report in INR as to what your long term gains are, short term gains are, and, and you can do the filing on your own. So that's I think just how technology is just the the beginning in terms of how technology is going to change the global diversification landscape. And and that's something that It's quite exciting for as an Indian investor that you continue to have a plethora of options to to keep uh, sort of exploring different investment opportunities.
1: Sure, Viram, there's one more point, uh, and uh, I'll have you answer it. But before that, Shini, if you want to come in on uh, this threshold, is there a good thresh? You know, kind of um, rule of thumb that if you have money above this limit, then it makes sense to invest directly through. Into stocks abroad, otherwise go through mutual fund. Now, you represent a mutual fund, so of course there is that disclaimer, but if you had to think of it objectively, would you would you put a number to it? Specific number. But I was
8: listening to Shankar and Bryn talk about the issues that you face, right? I think the what you the problem today is not about choice. I think there's a lot of choice, and platforms like Winvest and others are providing that, and mutual funds are also providing i think what mutual funds and other pms do is the simplicity of the whole stuff and somebody has time to do A bitcoin trader he has a lot of time to do it you know i was trying to set up an nft and it like a, oh my god it went through lots and lots of process but just the fun of doing it the you know the thrill that you get for doing it it's completely different right than just going and giving money to a mutual fund so there is a different set of investors who would love to do that and i i don't think There are any threshold matters like 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. Today you have options to invest. That's not a problem. But I think once they start understanding the complexity involved and the, you know, and of course the final uh, ability to generate return, uh, I think at some point of time, uh, simple investors, investors who don't want to do it yourself will probably go back to simpler products in mutual funds or PMS. But I don't think there is any uh, threshold, right? I mean, think. Um, I mean, there was a discussion about millennials being the key thing and that's fine because they have the time, they want to research, they want diversification, they love story, they love all these new stock, um, you know, discovery. And that makes sense. Even mutual funds, we are playing to that card, right? We are also launching, uh, there are some interesting product ideas that have come around that, right? So, this is, I think, in the very, very beginning stage of global diversification. What is going to work sure, we sure. wait and see. But one thing for sure, I think, there is going to be a coexistence, like in India, right? There is are de- derivative traders, there is a day traders, there is an equity a long-term investors and of course, there are mutual fund investors. You will have the same thing there also.
1: Sure. So, Viram, the point that I had mentioned is about accountability. So, if a PMS, if a registered PMS manager in India, um, you know, commits some sort of maybe fraud, maybe breach of regulations then the indian investors have very easy recourse i mean not easy but at least it's there you can uh, file a complaint with sebi that is not there with either the platforms or with brokers outside india and a related question is about depositor money protection so or rather investor money protection that if the broker goes belly up then what is the protection there so if you want to take both these questions
5: yeah yeah i think the second one first and and that's kind of also uh, one hedge against the accountability right which is that if you are opening up a, a brokerage account in in the us which is typically where everybody starts kind of international investing their journey uh, each of those accounts have an insurance right irrespective of whether you are a us resident wherever you are living in the world each of those accounts are are protected by the it's called the sipc uh, securities investor protection corporation in the us uh, up to about 500000 dollars. so uh, that's something if anything happens to any of the players in the the value chain right that that insurance will help you recover your funds or I mean it's not it's in the rarest of cases that that has even been needed because if anything happens of course you can recover your shares and cash from from the uh, custodians, but that's something that you have as a as a layer of protection and I think uh, secondly, in terms of the accountability, I think they're uh, kind of different. Players have opted for different structures, right? So, um, and 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 it depends that how how you want to look at it. Like for example, I think Swastik's company is regulated in the UK, and that's how they offer accountability. We uh, are regulated in the US, and and we'll continue to get licenses there. So I think there it's evolving, and and because it's so new, essentially there is no set framework in terms of this is what you can do and this is what you have to do. Uh, but whatever you do in terms of the exchange under which you're placing trades, you always have access to that regulator. So, for example, in the US, you, you can always, uh, have access to the SEC, file a complaint online because the underlying kind of broker that, that companies are working with, they are all in the US, right? So you can essentially file a complaint if you have any issues and, and, and that will be taken care of if there, if, if it needs any resolution.
1: Right. But there's probably an additional set of hurdles there. I mean, it's probably not as easy to, Say present evidence or follow up a case with the with the foreign regulator. Uh, but Shankar, can I let me, can I quickly uh, just add over there? Yeah, like, sure. Just
6: one one piece because you know we also did think about which is the regulator that should you know choose to regulate us when we were starting up, and we've chosen the UK regulator because one of the main things is it has a very clearly defined complaints process and very in a clear digital ombudsman recourse as well, right? So we've got a very well stipulated route where. You know, we even on on the self-directed trading that's happening on the platform on on Investor itself. You have recourse to say, okay, you know, I tried placing a trade, this thing didn't go through. We need to define that complaint process, res- respond to it within a stipulated time frame, give details of the ombudsman when it's, sh- you know, if you're not happy with it, and do it. It's an ombudsman process that doesn't even exist to that to that degree of flexibility on self-directed investing do- domestically, right? And that's why we chose the protections of this transparency and the principles of of transparency that the FCA has basically organized for to protect the Indian investor. Um, Yeah, I just want to sort of mention that from that accountability point, we've basically taken a bar and and sort of significantly superseded that.
1: Sure. Shankar, do you agree that uh, there is additional hurdles when it comes to accountability? So you have a PMS. Which regulator regulates you?
2: Right. So we are regulated both by the SEC and the FCA, and uh, like I said, that we have been global for 20 years. So we have been regulated internationally for that period of time, and therefore we have been, and we have been broker dealers in the US, brokers in the UK, members of the London Stock Exchange. So we we we've been just like a I member. Mean, we have been members of the NSE and the BSE for the last 27, 28 years. So we we know what exchanges are. We know what compliances are. We have been regulated globally. Uh as far as the global PMS is concerned, that runs out of under is slash regulated by the FCA in the UK. So that falls under the ages. And the gentleman just mentioned about the FCA process for any complaints or redress. FCA is a great regulator. We will regulate it by them for, like I said, 21 years. The the global fund is regulated by the Cayman Island Monetary Authority. It's a mutual fund. Like a normal mutual fund, you get a daily NAV, you can redeem at NAV, you can enter at uh you know at NAV. It's just like investing in any normal mutual fund. Cayman Islands is, is, is the preferred jurisdiction with some of the world's largest hedge fund, A large, large part of the FBI flows in India come from the Caymans. So these are all competent, globally recognized jurisdictions. And if there is any problem at all, you know, you can instantly file online complaints and, you know, that intermediary or that fund manager will, will have hell to pay. So. There is, in my view, uh, and first of all, deal with people, you know, who've been around a long time. I must say this. This is extremely important. And or go with people who are regulated in proper jurisdictions of the US, UK or Singapore or even the, the DFSA in Dubai. All these are great regulators. You have that layer of protection. Uh, but as we have seen in India, there, you know, in one broker default that has happened in the last couple of years, people still have been running from pillar to post. My friends, bunnies are stuck and they've got nothing. So let's not be too harsh on global regulators. In India itself, we have had tremendous problems with the domestic broker defaults. And people have, despite being on the ground, not been able to get a lot done, even within India itself.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um so we will uh, now start inviting questions. I'll just get Anish in before we get in more uh, more people, but Abhinav, when people raise their hands, please start admitting maybe two at a time. Uh, we have very little time left, but we'll try to take a few questions at least. Anish, so you've heard the discussion so far. Any thoughts on all of these issues, the regulatory issue, the tax issue, yet the benefits of diversification?
4: Yeah, I would say it it is uh, important for the Indian investor today to have global diversification. And I think it is, uh, for most, it is simpler to do it through the mutual fund route. It is much uh, tax efficient. I won't say more tax efficient, but I think it's much more simpler just to, uh, you know, access it through that route. And uh, yeah, as you move up the curve, if you want certain more, you know, differentiated strategies, you want uh, to, uh, you know, take a much more concentrated bet on certain industries or things like that. then uh, you can probably go in for uh, you know, a, a managed po- managed account as it's called in the US or a managed portfolio and uh, and yeah then you know, I think these things will evolve. I think there is definitely uh, interest in uh, investing globally. We hear that from our clients also saying that, you know, are you doing something in terms of uh, investing globally or are you providing advice on investing globally? And since we run a system-based, uh, you know, systematic quant uh, fund, so we, we will do that at some point in time. But uh, yeah, that, that is definitely an area, I think, which is going to grow and evolve and is looking very exciting over the next uh, four to five years.
1: Fantastic. Folks, uh, please raise your hands. Uh, we will take in two questioners
7: at a time. Chetan, good to see you. Uh, please go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Neil. My question would be to Shankar Sharma, sir. Uh, sir, I've been following you for a long time, and you've been bang on target that there's a bull market in some currency, some commodity, or some market, uh, or any some market in the world. And I've uh, seen the data which is put up of Vietnam and other countries doing much better than India. In the past ten years, the U.S. markets, uh, in INR terms, have given us much better terms than the Indian markets. Uh, close to maybe 22-23%. But at this crucial juncture, I wanted to find out uh, that there's so much talk about inflation in the US or the uh, or the wage inflation or stimulus checks, um, maybe the stimulus stock. So somewhere do you think the Fed might prick this big bubble which is built up or, build, uh, or the bubble will keep going and all boats will be lifted?
2: <laughs> I think you pose the question that uh, everybody is posing to each other uh my, my my simple answer is that, and this is my view, and uh, you know it's not our house view, but and this has plenty of opposition even within our company. But my view is that if you printed so much money, why on earth would you yourself want to raise the rate so that your own cost of servicing that much debt goes up? So it does not stand to any logic that the Fed itself will break its own bubble. At least for a while, I do not believe that ra- that rate hikes are around the corner. And the other thing is that this is a good, nice cocaine drip that has been given to the world because, you know, people have gotten busy trading stocks. India has become a nation of stock traders in large part. America is also becoming one. Online brokers are getting valued at $35 billion. So they say it's a good party. Why do you want to ever stop this? I mean, this has never happened before. But this has worked like like a charm last twelve months, right? We have forgotten the pain of COVID merely because our stocks are going up. So I do not think the Fed will, on its own, prick this bubble unless it is forced to buy a massive rise in inflation. On that itself, there's a different discussion. On that, I also have views. But I do not think the Fed, irrespective of what it says in its in its in its various pronouncements, itself is going to raise rates anytime soon.
1: Thank you for tuning in, we will be back next week with a fresh episode. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at neil.b at livemint.com. To give us feedback, you can reach out to us also on HT Smartcast. We are present on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn and Clubhouse. To listen to more podcasts, log on to HTSmartcast.com. Or Sunon Nay Nazari SA.
0: This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast.
4: HT Smartcast.